We're going to be looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses this morning, but I'll begin reading uh, at uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, let's stand, if you're able, uh, for the reading of the word this morning. This is the holy, inerrant, infallible word of God. Give it now your full attention. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. May God now add his blessing to the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time together to come before you, to bring you praise and thanksgiving for your glory, Lord God, all that you are, all that you have revealed of yourself to us. We thank you especially for the means of grace that you have given us. We thank you for your holy word. And we pray now, O Spirit of God, uh, having uh, inspired this word and, and having seen to its a preservation and inscripturation. We pray now, O Spirit, that you would take this very word and pierce our hearts with it and change us according to your holy will that we may be all the more conformed uh, to the likeness of Christ our Savior. We ask all this in his great and holy name. Amen. If I say from New York to L.A., or Seattle to Miami, you know what I mean, don't you? It's a way of referring to the whole country, to the contiguous United States of America. That is what we often call the lower 48. Now the Hebrews also spoke this way. When they said from Dan to Beersheba, they meant the whole country of Israel. Dan is a city in the far north of Palestine and Beersheba, an extreme southern 
city. And if you're familiar at all with Israel's geography, you know that from Dan to Beersheba, there's a radical change of terrain. To go from north to south in Israel is literally to go from the top to the bottom of the country. Near Dan in the north is Mount Hermon uh, with an elevation of uh, 9,100 feet. And near Beersheba in the south is the Dead Sea, which is 1,300 feet below sea level at its surface. Now, it's another 1,300 feet to the bottom, but most scientists say that this is actually a false bottom uh, made up of the silt that has poured into the Dead Sea for centuries. So, not counting the sediment, but the bedrock as the bottom of the Dead Sea, it's actually 24,000 feet below sea level. So from the top of Mount Hermon to the bedrock of the Dead Sea, in that 90 miles north to south, there is a 33,100 foot difference. That is dramatic. It's a drastic drop from Israel's highest peak to her lowest pit. No wonder the Bible is full of up-and-down language. Now, we, we have a similar dramatic contrast geographically uh, in our country. Excuse me. Do you know where uh, that similar uh, dramatic contrast is? You might think, uh, at least I did, uh, you might think Colorado, the Rockies. But actually, it's California. Mount Whitney is the highest spot in the contiguous United States, 14,495 feet. And only 80 miles southeast from there is the lowest spot in the United States, 280 feet below sea level, Death Valley, California. Also, the hottest place in the U.S., reaching 135 degrees in the shade, and Houston is trying to give them a run for their money, it seems. But what a contrast from a snow-capped mountain peak to a sun-scorched desert in just 80 miles. Just 80 miles. In Israel, it is a drastic descent from dew-covered Mount Harmon to a deserted Dead Sea shoreline. Now, it's notable that such desolate low places are associated often with lifelessness, such as Death Valley and the Dead Sea. Now, in Ephesians... From the end of chapter 1, that's why I wanted us to read that last portion. From the end of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, Paul takes us on a theological journey of drastic contrasts. From majestic spiritual heights to a desolate death valley. 
the deepest dead sea of man's soul. Pastor Kent Hughes writes this, Paul's method here is contrast. From death to life, from hell to heaven, from bondage to freedom, from uh, pessimism to optimism. And the contrast will enhance our appreciation for what we have in Christ and will influence the way we live. Close quote. Now at the end of chapter 1, you notice Paul is praying for his readers to realize how powerful God is. That nothing can stop his saving them and taking them to heaven where they will inherit joys and blessings beyond human comprehension. And the supreme display of God's power was the physical resurrection of Christ from the grave and His bodily ascension to heaven, to His exalted throne, where He now rules the universe for us, His bride, the church. And that same power is now in us, preparing us for our heavenly destination. Now in Ephesians 2, Paul says that God's power is also displayed in our salvation. Just as Jesus was uh, raised physically from the dead by divine power, we too are raised to life spiritually. We are made alive, Paul says in Ephesians 2.5. Made alive. And just as Jesus ascended in triumph over his enemies, we too are empowered to live above, to rule over, and to put down the powers of sin and temptation that threaten us. To do good works, Paul says in verse 10, which God planned for us to do. And so the grand purpose of our redeemed, reformed lives is God's glory. Verse 7 of chapter 2 says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, for eternity, the heavenly host will praise God for resurrecting us, for turning us from wretched sinners into his precious saints, all by God's grace alone. Now, referring to Paul's transition from the end of chapter 1 to the first 10 verses of chapter 2, uh, the late John Stott wrote, The sequence of thought is clear. Jesus Christ was dead, but God raised and exalted him. And you also were dead, but God raised and exalted you with Christ. Close quote. Now the parallel of God's power seen in us as it was in Christ, that is a fitting outline for chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. John MacArthur also sees in this passage a temporal framework that I think is helpful. 
having praised God, that is each person of the Trinity, for his part in salvation, which is what we have in the first half of chapter 1, Paul then petitioned God to open wide the spiritual eyes of the Ephesians so they would see God's goodness to them and the greatness of his power to save them. That's what we have in the second half of chapter 1. But now in chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, Paul clarifies the particulars of that salvation. What it means to become a Christian, to be converted, to become a member of Christ's visible body, the church. MacArthur writes, quote, In the first ten verses, this is of chapter 2, Paul presents the past, present, and future of the Christian. What he was, verses 1 through 3, our text this morning. What he is, verses 4 through 6 and 8 and 9. What he will be, verses 7 and 10. Within this framework, he gives six aspects of salvation. It is from sin, verses 1 through 3. It is by love, verse 4. It is unto or into life, verse 5. It is with a purpose, verses 6 and 7. It is through faith, verses 8 and 9. And it is for good works, verse 10. The first aspect is in the past. The next four aspects, except for purpose, pertain to the present. And the last aspect is in the future. Close quote. I thought that was a, a, a helpful uh, look at those first ten verses. It gives you an overview of the first half of chapter two. Which begins, we see here, with high contrast in verses one through three. In these three verses, the bottom drops out as Paul describes the human dilemma, the desperate, depraved, damnable state of our souls apart from God. Now, having just taken us at the end of chapter 1 to the pinnacle of heaven, the exalted Holy of Holies, where King Jesus is seated in resplendent beauty and glory, where we, as the hymn writer says, soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne. Paul then plunges into the abyss of our wretchedness, the deepest dead sea of the human soul. In three verses... He presents the doctrine of sin. Perhaps more precisely, the sinfulness of mankind. What the reformers called total depravity or radical corruption of the human nature. Now it's helpful here to remember that Ephesians... The book of Ephesians is often called the queen and Romans, the book of Romans, the king of the New Testament letters, <clears throat> which means that the truths abbreviated in Ephesians are fully, more fully expounded in Romans. So here in three verses, Paul summarizes the first three chapters of Romans. 
his magnum opus on sin's universal extent and effect. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul concludes, you know, in Romans 3.23. In Romans 3.9 and 10, he wrote, Both Jews and Greeks, and that's the Jewish way of saying everyone, that is all people without exception, are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. As in Romans, Paul makes it plain that he's not referring here in Ephesians to a few isolated, uh, decadent tribes or indecent segments of society, but mankind. In verse 1, when he says, and you... It likely means there, he's likely referring to Greek believers or to Gentiles. Contrasted in verse 3 to we all, likely meaning the Jews in the church. Paul's point being that all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, are identical as sinners. In verse 3 he concludes, like the rest, meaning the the entire human race, no, no matter how it's segregated, everyone deserves God's wrath. We all sin because we are born sinners. Sin is universal and it is radical. That word radical is from the Latin radix, which means root. And so sin is not a superficial or peripheral problem. It penetrates to the root of our lives. In biblical terms, the heart. That core of our character, uh, the heart, also often called the flesh or nature, as we see here in verse 3. And all of it, the heart, our nature, the flesh, has been corrupted by sin. And radical corruption means that from conception forward, nothing in us, nothing about us, or from us is free from sin. To say we are totally depraved means that every aspect, every human aspect, body, soul, mind, will, every component of man is compromised or polluted by sin. Jesus, you may remember, used a tree and its fruit to illustrate this. He said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the mouth Excuse me, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the heart, from the root, the core, come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, Jesus says. What we have here, acts of sin, plural, 
flow from a bad heart, singular. Now, the theological terms that, we, that we've used historically to describe this are, first of all, original sin, which means man's sin nature, his corrupted flesh or heart, the bad tree in Jesus' illustration, from which actual sins, meaning the specific wrong deeds or thoughts, are committed. Now, in verses 1 through 3 here of chapter 2 in Ephesians, Paul singles out three hard truths about unredeemed sinners. Apart from God's grace, the lost, in fact, they despise this shameful judgment of their condition. This is the very unpopular bad news that has to precede the good news. This is the light of the gospel men hate in unbelief because it so fully indicts us as rebellious and helpless. First of all, Paul says, you were dead. We were born dead. Of course, not biologically, but spiritually dead. And this is not a, simply a figure of speech here. As when the forgiving father, you remember in the parable of the prodigal son, said, this is my son who was dead. No, Paul is stating hard truth. The actual spiritual status of every non-believer. All who are not in Christ. They are still in Adam. And Adam's entire race is alienated, cut off from God. In Ephesians 4:18, a couple of chapters later, Paul says, "Unbelievers quote are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God." J. Adams writes, "Death of course is separation. When the spirit is separated from the body, physical death occurs. When the spirit is separated from God, spiritual death occurs." When the spirit and the body are both separated from God, eternal death, the second death, occurs. And here Paul is speaking of spiritual death, here in our text. Unbelievers, what this means is that unbelievers have no interest in God's word or his ways. There is no moral desire or ability to seek God. They are as responsive to God as a corpse is to your voice. No matter how long or loud you may yell or plead or entice a corpse, he's not moving. However, as R.C. Sproul said, to be spiritually dead is to be diabolically alive. So spiritual death is not an ignorant, passive indifference to God, but it's an active, conscious disregard. This is what Paul meant by being dead in trespasses and sins. These two words fully describe life for the lost. How those dead to God live now 
and, and how they go through the motions of life and yet never truly possess it. Men dead in trespasses and sin are basically spiritual zombies, the walking dead. Jesus spoke of men, you may remember, he said this, seeing though they do not see, and hearing though they do not hear nor understand. Paul told Timothy that a woman who lives for pleasure rather than God, quote, is dead even while she lives. Now, to trespass simply means to leave the right path, to go the wrong way, ignoring boundaries, we might say. And to sin, I'm sure you know, means to miss the target, to fall short of God's standard, His moral law. And together, these words cover the full range of human evil, the active, passive, outward, and hidden aspects of our fallen condition. Before God, all men are insolent and incompetent, rebels and failures. They won't because they can't turn to God and live. Lifeless in Death Valley, at the bottom of the Dead Sea, that is the grave condition of fallen man. That is the pit of death from which Jesus pulled you. In verse 2, Paul adds even more despair to his dark picture. Apart from God, men are not only dead, but they also are totally dominated. That is, enslaved by wickedness. Jesus taught that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Peter added, a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Here in verses 2 and 3, Paul lists, you'll see, the three cruel masters ruling and ruining every lost soul. They are also the clever foes against which every believer must fight. In this text and others, Martin Luther saw them simply as, you know them, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul's order here is the world, the devil, and the flesh. First, unbelievers live, and Paul uses the analogy for living, uses the analogy of walking. Unbelievers walk, they live according to what? The course or the age of this world. This cosmos. Now this phrase here likely means this present evil age. The ungodly values that permeate society at large. We say, we use the term secularism as a big umbrella under which many other enslaving isms belong. Materialism, Marxism, existentialism, hedonism, feminism, mysticism, relativism. I could keep going. P perhaps the prominent one in our society, our culture, meism. 
unbelievers are willing slaves of these worldly systems that deny Christ and esteem the self instead. Now secondly, unbelievers fall prey, Paul tells us here, to the schemes of Satan. He calls him, uh, he, Paul calls Satan here the prince of the power of the air. And what Paul is probably referring to there is the unseen realm below heaven yet above earth. The devil constantly tempts and entices the lost to disobey God. He's especially effective for those who don't believe, uh, through those who don't believe he exists. Self-made men, religious or not, are Satan's special servants. Proud pawns who think their independence, their autonomy is real. They are on his tightest leash, so to speak. And thirdly, unbelievers are enslaved by their own passions or desires. In verse 3, Paul says, The passions of our flesh carrying out its desires and thoughts. J. Adams offers this insight. The unbeliever, no matter how much he tells you otherwise, is a feeling-oriented, feeling-motivated person. Beneath his seemingly cool, logical exterior, you will find someone who lives according to his desires and his impulses. He jostles and grabs for self-gratification and satisfaction, for whatever makes him feel good. God here defines non-Christian living as desire and emotion-oriented living. Close quote. And so the bondage of unbelief is relentless. Outside the world, inside our own flesh, beyond both, working through both, the devil. Three hooks that pierce men's lives and hang them up like slaughtered meat to be butchered. Now the last rung, the last aspect or hard truth of man's descent into despair is damnation. Without God, man is dead in sin, dominated by evil, and thirdly, damned or condemned by God. Paul's phrase here, we were by nature children of wrath. Now this phrase by nature means simply here from birth. We're talking here about original sin, the imputation of Adam's sin. And the phrase children of wrath implies an inheritance. Namely, that we deserve God's curse, not His blessing. Men dead in sin, whose lives are dominated by evil, are worthy of hell, eternal punishment. Now, what a Dramatic descent from the glories of heaven to the pit of damnation and hell. What a desperate portrait of despair. 
Is this all there is to say about man? That he's dead, dominated, and damned? No, that's not the whole picture. The full picture. The Bible also teaches the dignity of man. Created in God's image. That men are capable of civil behavior. What the reformers called civic good. And we are endowed with many talents and gifts and abilities. Which often result in wonderful benefits for our fellow man. Yet none of that, none of it erases the awful truth that man in and of himself does not glorify nor thank God, does not obey nor seek his creator, but suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and worships and serves created things rather than the living God who is forever praised. Paul's words in Romans chapter 1. Ancient man, modern man, postmodern man, all despise this accurate picture of helplessness. But it is the truth. It is the first truth which the God of grace, the Lord of life, brought to your death valley. The first truth he dropped into the dead sea of your own soul to redeem you from the pit of death and despair. You know, the first and final, the precise definition of life is communion with God. Fellowship with God. Being in and under His covenant blessings. And the only way that communion is gained is by His grace. And the only way that saving grace comes is in and by His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died. He subjected himself to what? To death. The death we deserve so that we might live. He suffered the painful agonies of this wicked world to set you free from sin's domination. To give you a perfect record of righteousness before God's throne of justice. And he was damned on the cross in your place. He suffered your punishment so that you might be pardoned and forgiven and forever blessed. Your life, beloved, is from Him. Your eternal life is in Him. He causes streams of living water to flow within you. In this hostile world, this present darkness, He enlightens you. He prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. He feeds and nurtures your growing faith. 
He comforts your downcast souls. He leads you through and out of the shadowy valley of death into the eternal light and the glory of His infinite life. What a contrast, beloved. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the greatness of your love and mercy and kindness, the greatness of your power in rescuing us, Lord Jesus, from sin and death. We thank you for this wonderful work in our behalf that you were willing to undergo such misery and even the eternal punishment that we deserve in order to pardon us and to bring us into this glorious communion with you and the Father and the Spirit. We pray this morning that as we contemplate and think about these things, about the depth from which we have been redeemed, that you would continue to pierce our hearts and encourage us and conform us all the more into the likeness of Christ our Savior. We pray now in his great and most glorious name. Amen.